Uh, hey, church. Good morning. Uh, it's still, I'm still blown away by being able to see your faces. I mean, it's just so special. Uh, welcome online, North Ave. We're so grateful to uh, have you with us as well. And today there's a couple extra reasons to rejoice around here. Uh, number one, Essex people, you may have noticed, coffee's back. Yeah, we got coffee, lemonade, all that on the back patio. Please take advantage of that. We'd love you to grab some on your way out uh, this morning. North Avenue, we want to get coffee started too, but we need some help with that. So if you're willing to help, uh, please uh, talk to Chris Hodgson there, and we'd love to plug you in to get the coffee system going at North Avenue. So that's, that's a reason to rejoice. The other one is... At both of our campuses today, some of our kids' ministry is reopening during our 10 o'clock service, which I'm so excited about. My kids, I mean, I know my wife's excited. (laughs) Get those kids out of the pew and into the classroom, you know. No, they've been great. And you kids have all been awesome, but we're glad pre-K through first to have those, uh, that ministry back open for you guys starting today. So I'm excited. I hope you're excited. And uh, it's just a good day. Sun shining, summer's here. Uh, life's, Life's pretty good right now here in Vermont. Uh, So last week, uh, you may remember if you were here, if you tuned in, that we started in just a quick two-week little teaching series where we're looking at uh, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And we uh, we talked about the first part of the story last week, and today we're going to... We're going to wrap it up. So just by way of recap, Jesus, he's been eating. He's eating with his disciples. It's around the Passover time. And during this meal where he's with his 12 disciples, he gets up. They're eating. He gets up and he does something kind of uh, beneath him. He washes his disciples' feet. And this was a customary act of hospitality for a host, an important host of a meal to uh, have his guests' feet washed as they entered his house, sign of hospitality. And this was a, a job for typically the slave of the, of the person hosting. Um, so it's a lowly job. It's, uh, as I've termed it, the worst job ever. Uh, and Jesus, he's king of the universe. He does this job, the slave's job, the worst job ever, lowering himself to serve his disciples through washing their feet. Uh, He does that willingly, this great act of service. And in the narrative of John's story of Jesus' life, this, this moment of washing the disciples' feet comes at the beginning of the movement and the road towards the cross, a greater act of service, a greater act of humility, and this foot washing somehow points to that moment that's still to come of Jesus' crucifixion. So we talked about that last week, and as we talked about that, we mentioned that, uh, uh, that Jesus lowers himself like this, washes the feet for three reasons. Two of them we went more in depth last week because he loves his disciples, he loves his people, because that's just the kind of God that he is, a God who would do that for us. And I mentioned the third reason we're going to talk about today. We're going to dive into that, as well as some other things that this passage brings up along the way. So we're just going to dive back in in a second to John 13. We're going to finish this story. Uh, we'll read through verse 30 in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 30. So we'll get there in a minute, starting with verse 12. Uh, I, I'm a pretty good book learner. Okay, I can read commentaries on the Bible and philosophies and theories, and I understand it, but when it comes to practical things, I need visuals. I am a visual learner when it comes to using my hands in practical things, because honestly, I'm not a very handy guy. Uh, my wife's the one in our house who does most of the, the tinkering and changing doorknobs and stuff, because uh, she knows, she's like, I can't, I can't trust Matt to do that. So she, she takes care of that stuff for the most part. Uh, 
a little while ago, we wanted to replace the faucet on our kitchen sink. So we picked out one, well, Taylor picked out one that she liked and she brought it home and she put it in the kitchen right next to the sink and, and I think that was very purposeful on her part. So every time I walked into the kitchen, I'd see this box with the, with the new faucet in it taunting me, begging me, Matt, Matt, install me. So uh, days went by and I, I, I was trying my best to ignore it, but one day I broke, I walked in, I was like, fine, I'll do it. And I, I opened the box and I, I take out the instructions and the first uh, instruction said something like, uh, if you haven't already, uninstall the old faucet. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. You win box, like, I, I didn't know what to do. So I'm sitting there and uh, thank the sweet Lord for YouTube. So I, I looked up on YouTube how to uninstall a sink faucet and wouldn't you know it, videos upon videos with visuals, every step-by-step, very explicit instructions for how to do this. And uh, wouldn't you know, within an hour, I had the whole thing done, installed, ready to go. And uh, for me, I just, I need those visuals to make it clear when it comes to practical things. When I can see it, it makes sense to me. And not just the mechanics of it, but the theory and the big picture, how it all fits together. And I get a better idea of things when I can see it like that. And I think for many of us, having a visual aid, having an example, picture, a a video, whatever it might be, is so important for us when it comes to applying knowledge uh, and theories. And examples are not always meant to be rote and mechanical, right? But, but they can give us an image to work from or a jumping off point, a starting place when it comes to how we might approach and apply things in our lives. Jesus washing his disciples' feet is an example for us of how we are supposed to be servants like our Lord. It's an example for us. So let's dive in. We're going to start at verse 12 of John chapter 13. We'll read a little talk, read a little talk. So we'll start with verses 12 through 17, which says this. When he had finished washing their feet, that's Jesus, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So the third reason Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the one we didn't get to last week, I mean, we're told plainly by Jesus here in the Bible, he washes his disciples' feet as an example for us to follow. If Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, would willingly lower himself, taking this position of a slave for the sake of serving and elevating others, then we should do the same. He sets an example that we should do as he's done for us. Go wash some feet, figuratively speaking. Now, I don't think Jesus means literally go around washing each other and everyone's feet, though, I mean, he might mean that. It could be part of it. But, but I think Jesus' example here for us is an image to work from, a jumping off point, a starting place for how we can do like he did, humbly and willingly putting ourselves in a lower position for the sake of others. This is something I find quite challenging in these verses. That if Jesus didn't see himself above the lowest job, right? The worst job ever, washing feet, then I can't either. 
He's the creator and king of the universe, right? He, he, the highest possible seat of power and authority going to the lowest possible place. If we're following Jesus' example, nothing is below us when done for the sake and the service of others. We aren't too good for anything. For the follower of Jesus, there's no task too low when it comes to serving. And that's our jumping off point. We should be willing and ready to do anything for the sake of others. I find that challenging. So how do we figure out what that means for us? My life, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I know the, the time, the place, the what, and the how? Well, I think there's a lot of ways we can figure that out, but let me just offer three, three words that can maybe help define the category for us so that when we look at our lives, we can see where and how we might be able to to step in and serve like Jesus served. So three words, just to offer some category. The first one is willingness. What am I willing to do? In Jesus' example, he, I think he sets the standard for us, very broad category. We should be willing to do anything and everything to serve someone else. Jesus is stretching our willingness. He's broadening that for us. Are you willing to give money above and beyond what you normally give? Am I willing to drive people to doctor's appointments, help deliver groceries, Am I willing to give someone a place to sleep in my home who doesn't have a place to sleep? Am I willing to help someone move? And, and, and so many more questions we can ask. Jesus stretches our willingness beyond our comfort. Be willing to be willing, we could say. So willingness, that's the first one. The second uh, word that I think can offer some definition is the word opportunity. Opportunity. What opportunities are around you? Who are you in proximity to or what's going on at the moment, right? What's going on in your neighborhood? Do you know specific people that uh, could use some help with something or maybe a people group? Is there an event or a cultural moment that you can step into to help bring peace or to advocate for someone who might need it? Uh, Does our kids ministry need volunteers? Yes, it does at both campuses. There's opportunity, okay, at both campuses. Uh, What opportunities do you see around you to serve? Step in and serve where you see the need. And the third word I want to offer this morning, just to help give some category and definition to this thought process, is the word vocation. Vocation. I think that's the right word. What skills, what resources, what gifts do you possess that you can use? What do you have to offer? Time, money, energy, skills. Can you fix a bike? Can you install a sink? Can you start a garden? Can you coach a team? What do you have to offer? And what what are you not good at? And uh, stay away from those things that you might not be good at. <laughs> as much as your help is appreciated, if you're, if you're bad at something, you might, you might want to consider doing something else. A couple years ago, I took a team from my old church to uh, our, one of our partner ministries down in Providence, Rhode Island, Envision. We've talked about that before, our Envision site there. And they've been getting off the ground over the last couple years. And we were doing some construction there. So I took a team there. We were there for a week. And we spent half the week that we were there um, tearing out the drywall the week before us, the group had installed because they didn't do a very good job. And that's, you know, we don't blame them for that, but I say that just to say, what are you good at? You know, we don't want to reduplicate efforts or, or step in to serve something and you might not be able to really serve in that way, the way someone else might be able to. Use your skills, your gifts, your resources to serve others 
And lean into that and do the things that you know that only you can do. Opportunity, willingness, vocation. I think where these things start to overlap in our lives is where we can and best, most most faithfully do that foot washing thing and serve others effectively. Jesus' example to us. It's also our calling. I'll explain that. Let's read on and we'll hit on that. We're going to read now verses 18 through 20 of John 13. Jesus goes on here. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. Quote, he who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you this now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Excuse me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Uh, setting aside those first couple verses here, which are talking about Judas, we'll come back to him in a couple minutes. Let me, let me hone in on verse 20, and I'll read that again. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. The call of foot washing is to represent God in the world. And you can see the thread that Jesus pulls on here. Whoever accepts who I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me, who's uh, God the Father. So the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends you. And when you follow Jesus, if you pull on that string, we see how people respond to us, to Christian, as representative of Jesus, pull that thread, that's how they're going to respond to God. That means, if you follow Jesus, that you are showing God to the people around you. You represent him. So if they accept you, right, your life, your attitude, your actions, your message, that can and does often lead to accepting God. We represent him. We are his representatives. And that's our calling in this foot washing thing. Jesus gives us an example to follow very humble example and a challenging one, right? The washing feet example. Because that's the way God wants us to represent him in the world. Humble, loving, and serving. That's how he wants us to represent him. But why would God, the creator, the king of the universe, who all things are under his power, want to be represented by us in a humble, loving, serving kind of way? Well, uh, that's just the kind of God he is. We talked about that last week. But also... Because I think God knows that when we come to others in a humble posture, seeking to love and serve the best that we can, that that's probably the best chance that they have of accepting who he is, right? That's the best package from us, the representatives, humble and loving and serving. It's up to us to represent him well, his loving, his character, his willingness to serve. But we don't, we don't always do that so great. A couple of years ago, the research group Barna, the Barna group, conducted a survey of uh, Christians and non-Christians alike in asking some key questions about how you experience and how you um, perceive uh, Christians, evangelicals. 
And the, the survey asked, which of the following words would you use to describe evangelicals? And then it lists a number of words. And um, there's a percentage from each, from each uh, survey group next to that word saying, yes, I would describe uh, evangelicals using this word. So there's a percentage of respondents for each word. So here's some of the words from the survey. Let me share these with you. Caring, hopeful, friendly, encouraging, generous, good-humored. Those are some pretty good words. I like those words. Uh, for all these words, less than 10% of non-Christian responders said I would describe uh, Christians this way. Less than 10%. And here's some words that scored higher with non-Christians and how they experience and perceive uh, Christians, evangelicals. Now, these are not my words. Please don't get mad at me. These are words from the survey. You can write Barna Group if you're not happy with this. Here's some of these words. <laughs> They're not good words. Uh, Narrow-minded. Uptight. Invasive, misogynistic, here's a big one, racist, selfish, foolish, hurtful. I don't like those words. Those are not great words. And in the same survey, they also asked for overall opinion of evangelicals, and from non-Christians, only 9% indicated a positive response. Now, I understand that Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples and to us effectively that if the world hates you, remember it hated me first, right? So we Christians, uh, just the way, who we follow, what we do, how we live is very different than the world. And we're not always and probably not usually going to find that love and acceptance and just, you know, we know that. We've seen that. You've probably experienced that at some level. We know that. But at the same time, God has asked us to represent him well in the world so that the lost, broken, and hurting people around us could come to him and find healing and hope and to live for eternity with him as they were intended to. And if we keep putting off like hurtful, selfish, self-righteous, uh, judgmental kind of vibes, then uh, we're certainly at a disadvantage to fulfilling our call of representing God well in the world by serving, by being humble, loving servants and foot washing. The world expects of Christians a negative experience. Let's prove them wrong. Let's prove them wrong, not for our sake, but for God's sake as his representatives. Let's prove them wrong. God wants people to know him by the way that we represent him, so let's represent him well. I want to share just a couple more verses with you here. This is Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 where uh, Paul writes these words. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And here's Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Imitate Christ. Follow his example. Walk in love. Give yourself up. Walk in wisdom. Let your speech be gracious. Gracious. Uh, represent Jesus by being like Jesus. Wash some feet. Uh, as we come to finish the story of Jesus washing feet, I also want to note that there's a sharp contrast given to us in these verses that we're going to finish up with here. A contrast between the call of Jesus 
and the 11 disciples willing to follow him, and Judas, that 12th disciple. There's a contrast for us here. And in many ways, this story isn't just about Jesus' love portrayed, it's about Jesus' love betrayed. So let's finish up our passage, and we'll dig in a little with Judas and this contrast. So we'll finish up with verses 21 through 30, which says this. After he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and and said, uh, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he, the disciple who Jesus loved, asked him, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus answered, and he answers to this disciple. He doesn't answer to all of them, just to him. He says, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gives it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, uh, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Uh, this final scene as Judas leaves is sad. That's kind of puzzling. You know, for us as the readers of the story of Jesus' life 2,000 years later, like we know Judas is a bad dude at this point. You know, we've seen it a couple times throughout the Gospels. We know Judas is a bad guy. And when Judas leaves, I mean, the disciples clearly don't know. When Judas leaves, it says that they think he's going to get some supplies for, for their festival, or he's going to go give some money to the poor on their behalf. That's what they think is going on. They didn't know. Judas walked with them. He talked with them. He did what they did. He looked like them. He talked like them. He worked with them, and they had no idea what was going on. And we don't have to go through all the little details of this passage to get the point. Jesus clearly knows what Judas is up to. And Judas has made up his mind and allowed, as it says, Satan to enter into him and prompt him. I do want to say a couple things about that. Satan entered into him. Because this is, uh, could be confusing and it can make it seem like Judas didn't have any choice or agency of his own. He just is possessed to do what Satan has made him to do, right? He doesn't have any responsibility. Well, he does have responsibility. Uh, so J- Jesus dips a piece of bread into a dish, probably some oil or something. And, and this sort of gesture of dipping the bread and, and handing it to someone uh, is a sign of, it's a, it's a sign of friendship, right? We're sharing a meal. We're sharing the table together, providing for you, giving the bread. It's a sign of friendship, of intimacy, fellowship. And that's when Judas takes that bread from Jesus that we're told Satan enters into him. Now, the narrator of the story of John's gospel is John, the author, And many believe that John, the author of this book, is the disciple whom Jesus loved mentioned in this passage. It's the way he refers to himself in the story. The one that's leaning in close to Jesus, that Peter prompts to ask the question. The one that Jesus responds to and tells him, the one who's going to betray me is the one I give this bread to. He's the only disciple that knows what's going on. 
And as he's writing and recounting this story years later, um, is it any coincidence that he tells us something profoundly evil happened with Judas at the very moment when Jesus was extending to him a sign of friendship? I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, how else could this be explained that Judas could betray Jesus if there wasn't some special prompting of Jesus' ultimate enemy involved? And I think John's vantage point, if he is this disciple who Jesus loved, the one right there, clued into what's happening, leaning in close, it's important because from no other disciple could we get that information. He's the only one who knows. And I think that moment's really profound and important. And Judas, you're my friend. And Judas takes the bread and goes and betrays him. It's a bad moment. Also, the word Satan in Hebrew uh, literally means accuser. It's sort of a legal term used of someone who's bringing a charge against someone else. I'm accusing you of something, right? Bringing a charge. It's a legal term. And what we are now to witness throughout the rest of John's gospel is Judas conspiring with Jesus's detractors to accuse him, bring up false charges against him in the court. Judas is a willingly enlisted to be the accuser by the ultimate accuser and to help drum up these false charges. Now, John doesn't give us this part of the story, but Matthew's gospel does, right? Judas, one of the 12, looked like the disciples, talked like them, thought like them, well, maybe didn't think like them, but, but did what they did and all that. He, he goes to Jesus' enemies looking to profit off this situation. He's been looking to profit all along to serve himself. So here's Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, where we get this little, little bit of information that says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas wanted to serve himself all along. To profit, not to give. To be served, not to served. What a contrast. Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist, getting down on his knees, unstrapping the sandals of his disciples and scrubbing the grime and the grit and the, off their feet and saying, hey, do this for each other. And Judas lets his feet get washed. And Judas takes the bread and he cashes in. And the other disciples have no idea. To them, Judas was simply one of them. That's what it appeared. Uh, I read this story recently. There's a slaughterhouse outside of Cambridge in the UK. And there's a priest who works in the villages around that area who, uh, who tells the story that um, at the slaughterhouse, when the sheep from local farm stuff are taken to, to the slaughterhouse, uh, when they get there and they're in the truck and they, they lower the ramp for the sheep to walk out of the back of the truck, the sheep can sense the danger. They can smell something in the air. They know this is not a good place. And so they don't get out of the truck. So the slaughterhouse operators have devised a very clever way to get these sheep out of the truck. They have a sheep they keep on site, a sheep that's safe, that knows the place, that doesn't mind the sense of danger or whatever it is, is used to it. And they lead this sheep up the ramp, turn it around, and lead it back down. And the other sheep in the truck, seeing one of their own, 
It's safe, right? He's one of us, sheep. They all leave the truck as well. (laughs) And they call this sheep Judas. Uh, It wasn't obvious to the disciples, right? Jesus looked the, or Judas looked the part. He looked the part. He was one of them. But he was deceptive and self-serving instead of humble and other-serving. Sometimes looks can be deceiving. And sometimes the line between good and bad is so thin that it's almost, you know, it's, it's almost invisible, even to the insider. You know, almost every story I've ever heard about a pastor or a church leader committing some sort of a, abuse or having an affair or stealing money and deceiving, lying, and breaking the church, almost every story I hear comes along with people, friends, family, church members saying something like, I had no idea. We never saw it coming. I still can't believe it. Sometimes what looks and sounds like a sheep isn't a sheep. Especially in the church. You say the right things, you look the part, you use the language, you can leverage emotions. In the church, it's, it's really easy to look like a sheep, but eh, be more like Judas, self-serving. And using your platform or influence or whatever to, to cash in. It's hard to know. But it's not impossible. You know, we don't want to be deceived. So I, I was just thinking about this this week, and, and how do we figure out if that sheep's really a sheep or one of us, or, you know, however you want to frame that question. So I, I, I thought up five questions that you can ask if you're looking at someone and saying, ah, is this person legit? Are they a, a, a giving leader or a self-serving leader? So I have five questions that I don't think any one of these questions by itself is going to, you know, give you the answer, but if enough of them put together, you start to get an idea. So here's five questions. So I'll offer these to you. So the first question is, Whose interest is being served? Whose interest is being served? Who gains? Who profits? Who benefits? Is it you? Is it them? Or is it others? Is God's interest being served? And sometimes it's really hard to tell who really profits. But look at the message being said, right? Jesus says, wash feet, give yourself away. If the message says that you can gain or you can profit, not Jesus' message. And sometimes the message of you profiting really leads to, the pro- uh, to them profiting, right? Words like, the more you give, the more you'll get. Like, it's not Jesus' message. Leadership in God's kingdom is always towards the interest of those you serve, never our own interests. So that's the question you can ask. Whose interest is being served? Uh, second question is, what's their general attitude What's their general attitude? Is there genuine humility? Is there joy in serving? Is there willingness to drop something, to put things down, to spend time, to do whatever it takes like Jesus? Or is there, I don't know, defensiveness? Is there arrogance? Is there combativeness? You know, and some of these things can be appropriate at certain moments when there's a good fight to be fought, being combative isn't necessarily a bad thing. When something important's on the line, being defensive isn't, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if that's the norm, if that's constant in this person's life, that's, that's probably not a good sign. What's the general attitude? 
Third question. Who do they associate with outside your view? Who do they associate with outside your view? Judas, outside the view of Jesus and the other disciples, conspired with Jesus' enemies. The chief priests, his main detractors. So, you know, who do, they, who do they associate with? It's really easy to be influenced by people. Right? Does this person associate with people who are encouraging, provide accountability, who are on the same mission and support them in that? <laughs> we did it. Uh, <laughs> they associate with those kinds of people or do they associate more with people who might influence them in a bad way, feed the beast, so to speak, encourage them in unhealthy or destructive mindsets, right? But you got to also draw a line there. People outside the church, they could be associating with and friends with for the sake of mission and the gospel and just in general life enjoyment. But so that's a tough one. Who do they associate with outside your view? Uh, question number four. Is this person open and available? Do you or people you know have genuine personal relationships with that person? Relationships you can point to and say, yes, this person's invested in our lives, we're invested in their lives or the lives of those around you, right? Or is there a sense of mystery, a secretive, they keep a distance. You know, darkness likes to work in darkness. So the more light we can shed on things, the better. Is this person open and available? Fifth one, last question, is how do they handle feedback? How does this person handle feedback? How do they receive feedback? One of the biggest fears of a self-serving type leader is losing their position and their influence because they're trying to somehow stay up high on the ladder, right? So feedback can sound like an attack to that sort of person. Even gentle, humble, good feedback can make a person feel like their, their influence is slipping away. Do they get defensive or argumentative or make excuses when feedback's given? Or do they see it as an opportunity to consider things and learn and grow? And how do they give feedback? Not just receive it, but give it. How do they handle giving feedback? Does feedback always sound negative? Is it scolding? Right? Feedback, <laughs> it can be a tool used to keep people down, constantly seeking to gain that person's approval. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Or is there an abundance of encouragement, even if it's not necessarily merited? Uh, Scott Sauls, he's a pastor and author, he says this, you'll see it on the screen. He says, when you offer critique, do so gently. When you offer encouragement, do so fiercely. And I think those are really good words when it comes to giving and receiving feedback. So how does a person handle feedback? So hopefully these five questions you know, somehow put together in a, I don't know if you want to make a matrix out of it, whatever, but uh, can help determine, yeah, is this person, is this leader really others serving or are they more self-serving in there and what they're doing? So hopefully those help. Uh, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, it gives us this contrast. Jesus with the towel around his waist, Judas with a bag of money in his hand. And in giving us this contrast, I think we, we have a choice to make as we approach it. Am I going to follow Jesus here? Am I going to wrap a towel around my waist and be a foot washer like him and live into that call to represent him well in the world? Or am I going to be more like Judas? <laughs> it sounds hard saying that. 
looking out for my own interests, looking to gain, even if it means hurting other people in the process. It's a choice we have. <laughs> There's a right choice to be made here. Uh, I, as we conclude, I want to go back to verse 17. We just sort of glanced over it earlier. So I just want to offer these words in our concluding statement here. Verse 17 says this. And this is Jesus. He's talking. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Somehow, if we follow Jesus' example and we give ourselves away for the sake of others and for the sake of God, somehow we are blessed even as we empty ourselves and, and give away everything we might have. We are blessed. God blesses us. And our motivation in serving shouldn't be just to gain God's blessing, right? Because that's still self-serving. It's just in a more righteous package. But when we are motivated to serve others genuinely, just by wanting to follow Jesus, to do what he said, to be like him, when we follow his example and do those worst jobs ever for the sake of others, God is faithful to bless us as we do it. Now, I, I don't think he blesses us necessarily with money or possessions or whatever material thing you can dream up. I think that does happen. But when we follow his example, I think he blesses us with vision. That when we do what Jesus does, we get to see Jesus' work in us and through us, and we get to see that as it's happening. He is working to redeem and repair the brokenness in the world and in the lives of the people that we come into contact with, and he's doing that with you and through you, and you get to see that. When we're foot washers, we get to see God's work in action, and we get to know we got to be part of it. What a blessing. He also blesses us with new priorities. No longer trapped by the values of this world. We have a new set of priorities. Jesus says give instead of take. And the race, the accumulation of things, the, the need for status or whatever it might be, like we live independent of all that in a state of freedom from the grip of those things that so often we chase but just leave us feeling disappointed or worn down. We have new priorities. What a blessing. We're also blessed with presence. Uh, not presence like Santa Claus, but presence like God is with us. When we follow Jesus, we live in the favor of God and we walk with him and, and he walks with us. His Holy Spirit living with us. We are the living stones of the temple. He inhabits us. His presence is with us. When we get to the job of foot washing and we work to bless others, we in turn are indeed blessed by God as we give ourselves away. And this is how God wants to change the world. By using you. By using you as his agents of transformation and as examples of what that transformation looks like. Humble, loving, serving, and yes, blessed. So church, let's always be a people who's willing to wrap a towel around our waist and wash some feet. Not for our sake, 
but for God's sake and for the sake of those around us. Uh, Would you stand as we close in prayer? God, I just uh, thank you for the example you set. Even as I say that, I'm feeling like, man, you set a really tough example to follow. But you call us to it and you empower us for it and you, you enable us to do as you've done. And I say thank you for that example because that's who you are. That you are the kind of God who would get on your knees and wrap a towel around your waist and make us clean. So I thank you for that. And I thank you that you have called us to do that same work for for the world around us. Because when we do that for others, Lord, they see, they see who you are through us. And that is a high calling and it is a good calling and it is a blessed calling. So we're thankful for that. Help us, Lord, to see the opportunities before us and to fulfill the mission and call in our spheres, in our neighborhoods, in our kids' sports teams, in our workplaces, and in our own homes. We want to represent you well. So Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, I say we want those blessings. We want you to bless us. Not selfishly, but Lord, we just, we just want you and, and you come with blessings. So Lord, bless us with that vision to see you work in and through us with those new priorities to set us free from the things that would hold us down and keep us beholden to the old way. And Lord, bless us with your presence because what could be sweeter than walking through this life with you by our side? So God, we just glory in you today. We ask that you help us in all these things. And as we go from this place or from North Ave, from our homes, wherever we are, we go in the confidence that you are with us. You are a holy God. And you're the same God who washed our feet. And you are with us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church. It's been great to be with you today. God bless you as you go. We'll see you soon. Amen.